Today's episode of Bags and Brisby is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. High in the air, Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 61 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. This is the Levon Hernandez edition of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy Baggerly. Andy, how you doing? I'm doing pretty much the same. How are you? I'm doing pretty much the same except uh, uh, the allergies, the pollen. Uh, too much damn pollen in the air. Can you do something about the pollen? Um, do you have a, uh, what do you call one of those uh, ionizing air purifiers in your house? No, no, I don't. I don't. I do have uh, a dry cough, which is just really relaxing right now. Oh, I'm um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes everyone around me you know, super relaxed. Um, you know, I don't go out. I, I go to Safeway and they put groceries in the back of my car and that's like my excursion for the week. So I'm not worried or weirded out by it. It's just... Uh, it's a lot. It's just annoying. Yeah, yeah. Do you have pets? You do have pets. Yes, I've seen your pets. I do. I have a, a Labradoodle, though, so she doesn't shed. She's not, I mean, you know, there's no such thing as a hypoallergenic dog, but this is as close as it gets. Um, so, mercifully, I'm, I'm okay in that department. It's just, it's the darn pollen. It's, spring has sprung. Yes, it has. It has. And we've got, uh, we've got our little victory garden going and, and uh, planted a bunch of stuff. And we're already getting some sweet peas and, and some radish greens and, and our tender lettuces. You know what? That's what I did yesterday. I was gardening. I was in the garden. I was digging stuff up and there was raking going on. And that's, that's why I'm messed up. I have issues with my family. There you go. There you go. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Exactly right. You don't right. want to waste one of those N95s while you're out there... Uh, gardening but maybe you'll have to for the sake of your sinuses yeah man i just pieced it all together on a podcast wow all right well we're here to talk about uh baseball broadcasts uh which it's kind of cruel it's like you know being very hungry and listening to a cake podcast um, <laughs> but you uh you just wrote a, a magnum opus about espn's sunday night baseball and joe morgan and john miller the the decades-long pairing that is sort of in our internal monologue and we can close our eyes and hear it and it, it it was a fantastic idea for a story, well executed. So talk about what made you decide or what, what gave you the idea to do this. Oh, thank you. I don't know if it was a magnum opus. It was certainly magnum sized. But um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and part of that is the fact that when you interview John Miller and you carve out an hour, uh, be prepared to take two or maybe yes. even three. Um, John is just and he's interesting. It's You talk to some people and you're just waiting for your turn to talk because they're just boring you. John is, he'll go off on tangents. It's like, how did we end up talking about this? But it's all fascinating and interesting. And I think what what made those guys so good together is 
that you could tell they weren't just waiting for their turn to talk. They they uh, they were able to say what they wanted to say, and John needed a little room to to pump up the grandeur uh, of of a Sunday night baseball telecast. It really made you feel like that was the most important game of the day of the week, uh, even if if there was ten thousand people in the stands like there were for their very first game they broadcast uh, thirty years ago this week in Montreal. And Joe was very focused on the game in his analysis. It wasn't a whole bunch of anecdotes he would bring in or who who's the leader on this team uh, or you know you know some of the stuff that you hear from a lot of uh, analysts these days. It, it was very much focused on on what he was seeing, what he was reacting to between the lines. And all of that gave you that heightened sense that this game is really important. And uh, you know obviously it's a different TV landscape now than it was. 30 years, 20 years, 10 years ago. But those two guys, you know, even if you weren't a fan of, of Joe's especially, uh, um, we know there are people out there who, believe it or not, we're not. Um, those voices, especially those voices combined, I think uh, are ingrained in a lot of our, our minds. And, and there's a lot of nostalgia attached to that. And, and certainly now, I think, you know, we would take any baseball on TV and any announcing crew. But uh, just the thought of being able to sit down and watch Sunday Night Baseball with those two guys is, uh, I don't know, it, it, I thought, you know, we, sh- we should take a look at this, and this is 21 years of these two guys together, which is really unprecedented in baseball, and uh, so let's let's talk about how it all got started, and, and what kind of an institution it became, and, and I ended up learning a whole lot of stuff that I, I never, never, uh, never knew about, so, um, uh, so thanks, thanks for reading it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that is one of the more interesting uh, parts of the article was that description of, of Joe Morgan as laser focused on the game, which isn't something I, you know, in retrospect, I'm thinking back and it's like, yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, because I've wa- I've been in the press box and I've watched games with, with people like that. And I would like to think I'm an uh, astute observer of, of the game and I'm paying attention and stuff like that. But like I'm not compared to a lot of people, not to the extent that you'll you'll sit next to someone in the press box and you know occasionally you'll you'll get someone who is just picking up on look where that guy's toe is pointed. Look, you know, you see that? You see how he scratched his, his left ear? Yeah, now, you know, and the first one who, who uh, did that while I was sitting next to him was Clinton Yates. Uh, he's a writer for The Undefeated, and I sat next to him uh, in Dodger Stadium for the 2007, no, 2018 World Series, one of the Dodgers World Series. And he was like that. He was just saying, well, you know, he would have the bench already in his head. And he would say, well, they've already used most of their bench players. All they've got left is, is you know, player Y. So they can't do this. And if you bring in this reliever now, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to flip this guy around. And he's thinking seven steps ahead. And I'm thinking... Uh, I hope someone gets hit in the beans, <laughs> you know, like, I, I, but I, you know, I'd like to think I'm a very experienced, uh, uh, baseball observer and some people are just, no, they're, they're really digging into the game. And I, I, I really appreciate that. And it sounds like Joe Morgan was that guy. He was just thinking baseball steps ahead, seven or eight at a time. Yeah. Look at how Bregman just spit on that curveball. And, 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 oh, listen, that's a banging sound I'm hearing in the background. <laughs> Yes, the subtle, the subtle parts of baseball, the banging of trash cans. Yeah, and you know, obviously, uh, you know, as as I think the audience maybe got a little more sophisticated and and, and splintered a little bit. Um, you know, there there was more that was required of of a, a broadcast of a telecast, more required in terms of analysis, and uh, and Joe wasn't really, I think, on board with that, and and not only that was openly sort of hostile to it. Uh, in terms of the analytics and sabermetrics. But I, I understand where he's coming from because this is a guy who 
was five foot seven, 160 pounds, and, and he even described himself as five foot five. So maybe they <laughs> measured him in his spikes. But he had to. He basically was someone that had to prove himself, and everyone assumed that you know he's too small to make it. And he had to not only stand his ground but push back and mm-hmm. and 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 fight his way through and every step of the way. And he did to become one of easily the fifty best players to ever play this game. He's on Joe Posnanski's list in the mid-20s, I think. And just a hugely valuable player. And a lot of his value was sort of hidden because it was sabermetric. And uh, that's the great irony is that, (laughs) you know, he's sort of hostile to this way of valuing players. And this way of valuing players values him so much higher than he otherwise would be uh, from sort of a conventional standpoint. But you know, he's like, look, don't tell me how I should view the game, how I should value the game. I, I worked my whole life to, you know, uh, within this framework to excel. And uh, and so I'm going to tell you what I'm seeing. And I understand. I understand why he's 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 somebody who didn't necessarily try to learn more about the game. He's like, you know, I've done enough. I've done enough. And, and you know what? He, he did do enough. And, and to see the game from his point of view should have been enough. But obviously, you know, when you add the third voice in the booth, then that disrupts their timing a little bit. And um, and so, but like Joe said, you know, it was time for him after 21 years. Uh, he had other things he could do, and it was a long run, but he didn't think it was time for John. And uh, and I, I, I think that you're going to have a hard time finding people to disagree with that. I mean, listening to John Miller as a national voice of baseball uh, was, you know, one, one of the, uh, I think, the treats and privileges of this whole enterprise. It, it introduced John to, to everybody, and, and he's one of the most recognizable voices uh, for for a generation of baseball fans. And and thank thank goodness for that because he really is one of the best. Now, did you get a sense talking to John uh, that there are re- regrets? You know that he he really sort of still has a hole in his heart where Sunday night baseball should be, or is there that sense of I do miss it? On the other hand look at all this time and look at all these flights I'm not on. I mean, do, do, do you get a sense of which way he was leaning on that? Yeah, you know, John is, is a guy who's very honest. And um, I, I think he, he will tell you the whole spectrum of his thoughts. And uh, and I, I really feel like he's someone who doesn't complicate things. So in his mind, you know, he would say, well, look, if if I go back, then I make more money and I'm I'm getting a chance to to do this, and I, I still love it. I, I don't think that he was, uh, I think that he would have kept doing it because he did enjoy it. But I think he just saw the trade-off of, okay, I'm not going to do it anymore. I've still, you know, been very richly compensated after all these years. I've still got a great gig with the Giants. I'm still doing what my passion is, which is local broadcasting for a team. And I don't have to do all that travel. I think basically he was going to be like, either way, there's a positive in this, and I'm just going to embrace that positive. And I think that's the kind of person he is. Yeah, that, that's that's good. That's good. I mean, not to, to bring it back to me, but I just I do have something that's relevant in that when I was hired by The Athletic, I made sure to ask them, hey, can I still do my, my TV show, Giants Outsiders? And The Athletic said, yeah, of course. Uh, NBC, Sports Bay Area, didn't nece- wasn't necessarily keen on the idea. Uh, so the, our relationship ended. And 
for me, it was like, you know, I feel, boy, I started the show, I, this show was a lot of fun, I, I miss Therese, uh, but at the same time, about halfway through the season, I realized I'm not driving over the Bay Bridge, you know, three times a week, I'm not staying up until midnight doing a post-post game show, and like, I would kick my feet up, and then when the Giants would go in the extra innings, I would laugh, and I would send group texts to, to Cole, and, <laughs> and Carmen, and Therese, and like, show them a picture of my cocktail, and I'd say, hey, just relaxing over here, uh, so there was that sense And that is a very, very minor inconvenience to what John Miller must have been going through whenever he had to catch a flight after a a road. I mean, gosh, the travel logistics alone make my head spin for being a national announcer slash local announcer. I just can't imagine the travel that was involved. I mean, so he talked about chartering a jet when he missed one of his flights. Um, But did he give you a, a sense of like... How laborious and how awful was that travel? Yeah, he he is uh, closing in on two million miles on Man. United lifetime. Uh, so I mean, that's the status where basically George Clooney rings your doorbell and gives you your uh, loyalty <laughs> card, and it's got George Clooney's face on it. Um, and I, I actually was surprised. I'm like, really? I'm over a million, right? I've done this for 20 years. You know, uh, pretty much trying to concentrate on one airline. I thought that John would be up to like, you know, four or five million by now. And then I I realized all the charter flights he takes with the team, which is Mm. most of the flights he takes, obviously you don't accrue any frequent flyer or loyalty points for that. So this is just his travel for Sunday Night Baseball. And he's, he's, he's closing in on two million miles on just that. You know, we're talking, you know, 30 games a year. Um and uh, and yeah, he said uh, he said yeah, I'm, I'm still one of United's favorite people. He was uh, what do you call it, global <laughs> services and all that stuff. But yeah, the the fact he did have to charter that one jet and pay thirty two thousand dollars to get himself <laughs> from San Francisco to Washington. The way he he was describing it was it was before um, the first game at Nationals Park opening day, uh, whatever year that was, two thousand. What would that be? Eight nine. Um, and he's, he's at home. He lives in Moss Beach near Half Moon Bay and he's shaving and he's mostly packed and he, he checks his flight and he sees it's on time. And then he realizes he just had the time wrong and it was, it was leaving in an hour and it was boarding in five minutes and he called and they said, there's not really much we can do. It was spring break, and so everyone was returning back east. He said he could find one flight to Boston, but then he was stuck there. He didn't know how he would get from Boston. And, and so finally he said, well, I, it's in my contract. I got to get in, uh, you know, the day before. And I can't just take a red eye and go straight in my rumpled clothes to, to the production meeting and try to do this game on no sleep when I got the president in the booth and, and it's the first game of opening day. So he just bit the bullet and, 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 uh, and decided to, to buy the flight for $32,000 and they had the limo pick him up and take him to his hotel where he got six hours of sleep. And, and, uh, and I said, well, well, couldn't you at least like enjoy the, the being in the lap of luxury for those five hours? And he said, no, I didn't even eat the food. I didn't have a champagne. All I could think about is you dummy, you idiot, you know, you're, 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 taking $32,000 and lighting it on fire right here. So he, I, but we know that John's a world traveler. He loves cruising. He loves, uh, uh, ships. Um, he loves seeing the world with his wife, Janine. And I, I'm sure that, that, uh, his frequent flyer miles have, have, uh, given him lots and lots and lots of business class tickets all over the world. Uh, so I, I hope he's come out ahead on the 32000 by now. Now, the whole article sort of put into perspective the importance, uh, the 
comfort that comes with a national announcer that everyone is familiar with, especially when you've got someone as talented as as John Miller. And in this, you know, since this whole shutdown, I've been going back and watching classic games after classic game. And when you get a Vince Scully game, a national Vince Scully game, it is Gosh, it's such a treat. I mean, uh, there was, he did, uh, it's a little known game or a little known set of games. Uh, It was the Chicago Cubs versus the San Francisco Giants. So the National League Championship Series in 1989. Why do you keep bringing that up? Why do you keep bringing that up? (laughs) Oh, but you know, he did those games. It was just fantastic. You know, he's just in there and he's, he's got the, the little, the little notes about everybody that, you know, just totally studiously prepared and they're, they're relevant notes. They're fun. He's he's giving you all these things, and then you will have. Uh, you know, I don't want to besmirch anyone, but let's let's say that there is uh, an announcer play by play for ESPN who I don't know. Back 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 in the day. Um, back 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 back. See, see <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to besmirch him, but uh, that he did the Jose Cruz Jr. game where uh, Jose Cruz Jr. dropped a fly ball and the Marlins won, and so it was like a double dose of this is awful and also. Uh, you know, it's not Finn Scully, and so like the contrast and the importance of getting that national announcer that that you want to listen to super super important. Did did you have that guy other than Scully, or was like Scully the one for you too? Bob Costas for sure. The Saturday game of the week on NBC. Uh, mm-hmm. Joe Garagiola. You got Tony Kubek a lot. And baseball is different. I mean, baseball its viewership is very regionalized. It's it's very different from the NFL. So. Uh, you know, we've really gotten away from having that national voice. I mean, as as much as there is a national voice for baseball, it's it's probably Joe Buck, and right. and and the you know at least the online community is not. You definitely don't get a whole lot of Joe Buck love on the <laughs> internet, and I, I I don't think he's bad. I think he's fine. I was never a huge Tim McCarver fan. Um, I do like John Smoltz, but uh, you know it's not like he's instantly identified John Smoltz when he's on air yet. I think it's really rare to have those national voices for baseball and. You know what? I think it's it's a good thing. Anything that sort of gives us some shared kind of connective tissue, and I think it brings us together and has uh, to have that shared experience. Baseball's gotten a little bit away from that, and uh, whatever I think the game can do once things do get started, whenever that is, uh, to try to make sure people have some kind of universal experiences with the game. Uh, that we can use as touchstones and we can they can sort of drive those memories and that nostalgia. I think that's important because that stuff all kind of resonates uh, over the long term. And um, that's a tricky thing to do, uh, especially when when like 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 I mentioned, you know, baseball has become so regionalized. I mean, if I write a story on the Giants, we all see our viewership and everything now. I, I got a lot of reads on that Sunday Night Baseball story because it went on our MLB page. But if it was sure. just about Giants announcers, I mean... Reds fans don't read Giants content. I don't think that, you know, uh, Cardinals fans would watch uh, an Angels-Twins game. Um, But uh, when you can sort of, I don't know, anything you can do to kind of say, hey, look, here's, this is really cool. We're going to go to the Kingdom and you're going to be able to watch King Griffey Jr. in 1990. That was a treat. That was a privilege. And now because everyone can buy an app for 120 bucks and watch all the baseball they want, it's almost like, now that it's available, you're not hungry for it. It's, uh, it, I don't know. I'm not sure how you get back to that because it's great that everyone can watch everything whenever they want. But I think it dilutes the experience a little bit too. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. And it's, it's 
baseball, there are so many games, it has to be regional. You just can't follow it. You know, the NBA season is long enough, and there's enough games to where that, that's hard to follow. But still, you have the event games, and, and it's easier to, to cater to a national audience because you want to see LeBron or you want to see Curry. Uh, but baseball, I don't think it's going to be like that, and because... With baseball, you can watch a game and say you're watching for for Giancarlo Stanton and you're committing three hours to this. He might come up four times and strike out twice, ground out once, and, you know, he might not do anything particularly Giancarlo Stanton-like. Whereas if you watch a basketball game and you got LeBron and you've got Curry, they're going to be touching the ball a lot. They're going to be doing Curry and LeBron things. And so baseball is, to appreciate it, you have to really, really get granular. You have to watch a lot of games. You have to watch a lot of these moments. You sort of have to to wait for everything to build and then you get that that sort of reward at the end. It's, it's like a progressive jackpot. And that doesn't lend itself well to national coverage. Um, so, I mean, that's... I, that's why the All-Star game isn't uh, uh, as beloved as it used to be. Because back in the day, if you wanted to watch Vita Blue, you had to watch the All-Star game. If you were in Detroit and you wanted to watch Willie Mays play in Tiger Stadium, that was going to be the All-Star game. So it was just a much, much bigger deal for, for obvious reasons back then. Uh, yeah, I, I I totally agree. And it, and it was fun to, to go back and, and see those national games Um you know, with with uh, you just you just felt like like the Ryan Sandberg game. If you watch that, you you're gonna remember it, whether you're a Cubs fan or a Cardinals fan or a or an Astros fan or whatever. I think it's just cool to have those moments that kind of bring people together as mm. as baseball fans, and uh, and I, it's it's sort of the way of the world, I guess. Um, in, in a sense, what we're all going through now is is maybe giving us a shared experience that obviously isn't a positive experience at all, but um, but maybe it'll it'll help to restore some of that uh, that we're all. You know, we can all go th- through things together, and and uh, and maybe we all relate to each other a little bit better as a result. And I will go back a, a little bit and and bring Joe Buck back up because I have gone on Twitter. I am a confirmed uh, uh, Buck fan. I like his his play by play. I think he has gotten a lot better over the years. I think one of the early criticisms was that he sounded bored. He does not sound bored to me uh, in, when he's calling games these days, when it's exciting. He is invested. I I think he's doing a tremendous job. And maybe, maybe that's because he's the voice of three Giants World Series <laughs> runs. I mean, honestly, you know, it's like he's he's responsible for the lot of uh, the endorphins that, that kicked up in my brain. So, when he's when he's announcing the the Michael Morse home run, or when he's saying Ishikawa, you know, hits one and a right, and it's just that's an iconic call. And maybe without that, I'm still like, yeah, I don't like him. Uh, but right now, hey, I like the guy, and I'm happy to hear him call the baseball game whenever it's on. So that's that's my two cents. I understand it from Giants fans because Giants fans are incredibly loyal to their announcers, to Krook, sure. to Kipe, to John, to Flem, as well they should be. I mean, Giants fans are so spoiled, and I think they all realize that, uh, how spoiled they are with their announcing team. And when they most want to hear what Kruko is going to say or how Kuiper is going to call a home run or whatever, uh, then, you know, they're deprived of it unless they sync the audio and, and turn down the TV and, and try to play it, the radio as a simulcast. So I get it. I totally get why there's an affront to having to listen to Joe Buck when he's not your guy. And sure. if that's the case, you're always going to assume that Joe Buck is, is going to be biased against the other team or at least not biased for the Giants. So it's a tough 
position for him to be in. He even made a joke the other day about Packer fans all assuming that he hates the Packers. And maybe that maybe that lets you know you're doing your job well if fans from every team just think that you're biased against them. But what what ultimately, the, the biggest thing that got Joe Buck in trouble was a few years back, he made a comment, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something where he sort of expressed a little disdain about the game. It was something where the job was a little workaday for him. And uh, sure. And I, I wish I knew exactly what he said because I don't want to frame it without using his exact words. But it was something that, that made you go, well, oh, this guy really doesn't love his job. And and I just think that the, the number one thing an announcing crew can do or player can do is is just demonstrate with, with, with their voice, with their inflection, with what they say, with how they say it, um, with how they play, that they just love being out there, and they would rather be doing nothing else right now, and and this is just bringing them so much joy and pleasure, and they just can't wait. They're bursting to share that with you, and uh, I think that's what John Miller does a tremendous job of, along with uplifting every moment, um, no matter you know what it is he's broadcasting, and I think that's some of what some of the great broadcasters over the years have done. You just know they love the game, and and Joe Morgan mentioned that too. He said that was the one thing that really put us together, whether you know it was a Hall of Fame player or, or someone who grew up as a fan, bringing their recording device to, to Candlestick Park to, to practice calling games as a teenager. It's uh, no matter what your experience with baseball was, what connected them was just how much they loved it. And, and I think that came through. And I think that comes through with every single last Giants broadcaster is you've got Kruk and Kipe, you have Dave Fleming, you've got John Miller, and I don't remember ever listening to any of them and saying, Wow, he'd rather be somewhere else. I mean, you know, you have it with Miller, you have it with uh, Crook and Kipe, especially. I mean, you know that they like each other. It, you know, they they joke about you know uh, uh, spooning on the road and stuff like that. And <laughs> it, 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 you just you get the sense that they want to be watching baseball. It's almost like when you would see Willie McCovey at every home Giants game. It's it's not he's not there because he's being paid to be there. He's there because he wants to watch the dang Giants game. And, and I he's got to go through a ton to be able to get himself there. You yes. Know, you know everything that he, all the sacrifices, all the work, all the pain he had to go through to leave his house and just get he just to the He just wants park. to be there. Yep. Yeah. He just wants to be there. And, and you get that sense, like, if they shut off the mics, but they said you could still sit here, I think that Kruk and Kipe and, and John Miller and Dave Fleming would probably go hang out and just watch the baseball game and talk together. And I get that sense from all four of them. There are times on the post-game rap when when uh, Kipe is basically like eating his microphone or looks like he's falling asleep <laughs> where it's like, okay, you know, I maybe they're not super into this post-game rap, but even that is funny. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you can it's identify a it a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I love that one anecdote that was in the story about 19... Uh, 94 after the strike hit they still did Sunday night baseball uh, in in the minor leagues and there was a game in uh, Scranton and uh, it was the rain delay and then it went extra innings and nobody wanted to be there but they were all kind of committed to being there through the end of the game whenever that was and it just seemed so so um, like a sense of duty and, and obligation and nothing else at that point and then some reliever comes in is at the end of the bench and and John says to Joe, Joe, tell me about his repertoire. <laughs> Joe says, John, when he throws a pitch, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, I I loved that story. That was from um uh from from one of their producers at the time, and uh, 
you know, you're going to have those moments. It's it's a long season. Um, you're not going to be able to maintain your 100% enthusiasm all the time. And th- maybe that's when you manufacture a little uh, sarcastic enthusiasm. Yeah. I always liked Joe Morgan as a color commentator. And when Fire Joe Morgan became a thing, it I was kind of annoyed at Fire Joe Morgan. I wanted to do a Fire Joe Morgan, like blow by blow to the Fire Joe Morgan column. So it would be, I guess, fire, fire, Joe Morgan. Um, you know, that was my initial impulse. And I think part of it was jealousy because, you know, who's this this guy who he thinks he's a funny writer? Is he actually funny? Well, yeah, I guess he's very funny. He's a multi-million dollar comedy writer now. Uh, Michael Shuri, I guess he is funnier than me. Um, but I also just, I didn't like, it was the worst of that turn of the millennium sabermetric uh, arrogance. And I has just I just started to come out of that as I'd broken free of that cult where, you know, you just felt like you had all the answers. And the more baseball you watch, you, you realize you don't. And you realize that someone like Joe Morgan probably can say if you just when he starts talking about sabermetrics, just roll your eyes. But everything else is pretty darn keen. Um, so I, I was a Joe Morgan fan when it came to the color commentary. Now, when he was play by play for Giants vision, that was rough. That was yeah. rough. He's not a natural play-by-play announcer. That yeah. was, wow. But uh, as a color commentator, that was fantastic. I mean, Fire Joe Morgan was brilliantly written. It was sure. really funny. It was very intellectual. And, and and some of the turns of phrase, you'd just be like, wow, that is so rapier sharp. Um, yes. And yet, and yet a lot of it, a lot of it was bullying. It was. A lot of it ended up being just have like having a bu- a bullying tone to it and so you know i i actually do i i did enjoy reading it but i also didn't feel so good about reading it if that's uh, if that makes any sense sure sure yeah it was uh it, you know uh like eating a big old danish you know like a, a three pound danish you, at the end you sort of felt ooh, why did i why did i do that but no i mean obviously dude could write dude could write well and it was funny so i read every column i mean don't get me wrong i'm not gonna sit here and and say that i hated it so much i didn't read it but it did feel gosh you know when i i came of age on on usenet baseball groups and stuff like that and it was just oh people were so sure that defense didn't matter they were just how could you start this light hitting shortstop don't you know that defense just isn't that important or or a catcher framing pitches a catcher framing pitches how much value could that add you know and everyone was just so dogmatic about it and it turns out in retrospect like uh actually we we got the numbers in and, and Framing pitches is hugely important, wildly yeah. important. It adds wins every year. Um, so I, I don't know. I just I have a lot of pent up emotions about the the dogma uh, uh, the dogma of early millennium sabermetrics. I, I think that I was a Usenet um, guy when it came to college basketball and college basketball recruiting. That was my big jam back then, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I got my first email address, I think, when I was a sophomore in college. So, unbelievable yeah, but, how much the world has changed. Yeah, what what year did you start college? Oh, gosh, I think that would have been 1993. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it was 95 uh, was my first year. Actually, no, f- fall of 94. So, yeah, we're right there. And, yeah, I didn't have an email address in high school. Yeah, no, no email address, no cell phone. I didn't get a cell phone until 2000, I think. That was my first cell I, I used to think people who had cell phones thought they were really important. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm never going to get one of those. But uh, then I got one, and... Uh, yeah. Freezing cold takes. Freezing cold yep. takes. Yep. 
Exactly. All right. Well, this has been episode 61 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. Uh, We will be back on Thursday. Thank you so much for listening.